Across the Miles, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today, I'm joined by Greg. Hello. And we will be talking about high-level campaigns, how to run them, what are some of the issues, and how to build the encounters for them. Mm-hmm. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, so we uh, we just finished a game of Spirit Island, yes, we did. which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we haven't been, I, at least I personally haven't played that in quite a while. I know you had a chance to play it with... Uh, some of our friends who had never played it before. Yes, yeah. yeah which is yeah. super cool. Uh, and they loved it. So yes, we'll have they to, did. We'll have to play it together at some point. Um, but mm-hmm. it was good. It was good to get back to the game. Um, it was you and me and your roommate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were playing Keeper of the Forbidden Wilds, Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares, and Shadow Slicker Like Flame. Yep. So very fear-focused. Yeah. Which is interesting because I didn't feel like we were super like we weren't rushing for a, a terror level victory. I we were kind of just taking things methodically as they came. Like I didn't feel like it didn't feel like a bringer game to me. Well, I think that that a lot of it is probably because of the keeper of the forbidden wilds, right? Because I just went into some de- defense and some like movement kind of stuff at the mm-hmm. very be- beginning because I'm like, you know me, I hate going to the lights. You do so. I'm like, I want to prevent this as much as possible. So I just went and tried to get as much stuff to prevent that as I could. Uh, so like one of my first powers that I gained was a defend 10. Right, which is super useful. It saved us yeah. literally uh, from at least blighting one time mm-hmm. and losing two to Han. So. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting the way our instincts sort of combine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have much more of the defensively oriented play and I'm much more of a just, you know, let it burn. I'll yeah. deal with it later uh, type situation. So I think together we tend to form a fairly balanced team. It's been working so far. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, very much so. But so this was great. I mean, it was it was interesting. I am still on the fence, I think, about the events mm-hmm. system that was added with Branch and Claw. But I think we had a little bit more success with it this time, partially because we were able to acquire powers relatively early on that synergized very well with tokens um so you and i each acquired uh powers that put disease on the board or interacted with disease already on the board Mm -hmm. and then we had two back-to-back events that added like i think six total disease between the two of them so like oh and stipulated that disease wasn't consumed Mm -hmm. so there was just a lot going on yeah in terms of tokens being available to interact with and to do stuff with so i think it was you know sort of firing on all cylinders in in ways that it hasn't when i've played with events in the past events are definitely very tricky because like even the first event that we drew was just a you know punch in the balls right there Mm -hmm. because like it was like oh uh, you know, all that energy that you used to spend to like, you know, uh, use that, that one slow power that you you do, you have to spend another amount of that exactly to be able to use it. Or you just get to cancel that, discard it and gain some energy. Right. And just the, the to have that be the number, like the turn one event, which is really devastating in yeah. terms of, of slowing us down. Ultimately, we recovered, mm-hmm. uh, but we did have a, a pretty rough few turns after that. Yeah, exactly. We had a little bit of like uh, an issue. Luckily, I think the the draws that we got uh, in terms of the um, the invader cards, invader cards, w- really helped us because yeah. like I think the biggest thing was that we had two jungles in a row. Yeah, and this is interesting because this is this is not the first time this has happened to me where you mm-hmm. draw the same terrain twice in a row, and it's it's interesting because it can really cut either way. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. It, there's no middle ground either. 
you know, you're able, your Dahan are in position, or you've got the powers ready, and you're able to destroy everything on the Ravage, and mm-hmm. then there's nothing left to build, or you're not set up to do any of that at all, and then you have Ravage, and they build into a much stronger position to Ravage next turn, and those are about the only two ways that that happens. And it's Pretty much, pretty much. I would say on the balance, I've had really good luck. I've been able to get the former more often than the latter. I mean, I usually, I think, because I like to use the Ravage in order to kill right. people using the Dahan and all that, I, I try to stay on top of that as much as possible. You know, I'm the defensive guy. I always want to, like, make sure that things die when they're supposed to die mm-hmm. uh, and, like, don't do any damage. So I think for the most part that helps me. But if there's a turn where it's just, like, I just literally can't get anywhere or, like, one of us just can't get to the right place, then we can get a little bit screwed. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we also, like, in the run-up to that, we were able to, like, move a lot of guys off of the jungles, mm-hmm. um, which also helped a lot because that meant that we could focus a lot more on just very specific ones that needed to be focused on. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I think at the time when we drew the second uh, Jungle Explorer, uh, we only had, like, two things that even had jungles on them. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very uh, light board yeah, sort of. T- by the time we got to that position, so mm-hmm. um, that was definitely uh, definitely manageable. But overall, you know, wonderful to get back to that. I know uh, you're actually out uh, the week that this is airing, so yep. uh, I'm talking to a ghost. But Ooh. you know, that means uh, probably another variety stream. So maybe you know, Spirit Island. But that's not the only thing that we played. You guys, you and William and Harrison, had a chance yep. to play near and far, as you are mm-hmm. want to do. Yep. With the new Amber Vines expansion. Yeah. So how was that? What did they add? They added a lot. So they completely changed the mines, which is cool because that, that is literally the name, the Amber Mines. Right. So, and it was a fairly you know rudimentary system. Like, it was fine. Yeah. It did what it needed to do, but the fact that they buffed it up is, is good. Exactly, exactly. It's nice because uh, now you actually get to do a little bit more exploring in there. You get a little bit more from that. Rather than just purely like, okay, I'm going to get like this small benefit uh, when I put it down. And so I think that that added a lot. The magic was really important. Right. I mean, of course it would be. Yeah, the magic system itself. I I like the system. Um, The way that it works for the most part is that you gain magic when you go to a uh, mystic's hut. Mm -hmm. And they tutor you in magic. And you can either gain one magic if you just straight get that tutoring. Or if you pay a gem, you can get up to three. Every three magic levels that you gain, you gain a spell. Okay. And the spells are, you can use the spell one time before coming back to the uh, the Mystic's Hut. Okay, because you got to recharge it. Yeah, you have to like recharge it, you have to refresh them. But they're pretty powerful. There's like a spell that gives you an extra two movement. Mm. Uh, there's a spell that gives you two reputation if you build a camp or when you build a camp. Uh, and there are a few other ones that they allow you to do different kinds of things, which can be really powerful. Like you can gain healing potions. So for every food that you use, you can gain a heart or something like that. So these can really help you tailor what you're doing in order to make your strategy the most effective. Right. And so do you get to choose what spell you... You draw three and take one. Okay, so standard sort of mm-hmm. limited choice. Limited choice, but there's a choice nonetheless. So okay. it's well, that's nice. good. And then whoever has the most magic at the end of the game also gets an extra two points. Okay. So, and if you're tied, you both get it. And same thing in the Amber Mines, when you claim the different mine cards, 
whoever has the most amber tiles on the mines uh, gets five points. Okay, so some pretty pretty big point swings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all things considered. Exactly, and there are also some new items which are really powerful. Mm-hmm. So they added those in there as well. The town actions that were changed were the mines, the Mystic Hut, and also there is a general store change. Uh, the general store now allows you to to do a little bit more there. You get a, you can actually regain hearts because whereas. Uh, beforehand, when you play, played the game, it didn't really matter. Once you got back to uh, town, who cares how many hearts you had left? Right. It didn't really matter. Now it does, because when you go into the mines, you can actually use whatever hearts you have left mm. in order to actually adjust the um, the outcomes. Right, right. Uh, so the general store now allows you to gain two hearts and also gives you a, a new die. So they now added a... A specialty die that has uh, the one is a reroll. Okay. The two is pay a food to reroll this. Okay. And then three and up is just three and up. Huh. So it's three to six, and then like you get reroll ones. You can always reroll the one, or you have to because there's no one on the die. Right. And then you can reroll the twos if you have pay food. That's pretty cool. So it's great because especially for someone like me who is absolutely horrible at die rolling. Right. Um, this really helps because this means that like, you know, when you're out, when you're, you're doing the adventures, when you're doing anything like that, you have this die and now you, you know that you're at least at a two. Right. It just stabilizes the whole thing. It stabilizes everything and it's, it's just really nice. I, I really love that mechanic. So well, there you go. Well, yeah, I, maybe I'll come back to the table and, uh, dive in with you guys at some point. And try it out. There's actually also another thing that's really cool, which I think that would be fun to get you on for is that outside of the campaign itself. You now have um, specific scenarios that are for specific maps, so okay. that you can play like this. There's an election happening on this and this in this town in this map, so it has a whole new set of adventures and that kind of thing. So that can be done like as a one-off. That's really cool. Rather like than that. as part of the campaign, which yeah, is something before, that was missing before. It was a really strong binary. It was either you're playing the full campaign, or well, okay, there's character mode. Or you're playing, you know, arcade mode where it's yeah. just totally, it's not even quests. They're just little cards that say, mm-hmm. if you do this, you get this. So that's really cool. I would love to do that sometime. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking those out because they seem really cool because it's very specific to each map. So it's like on this map because these are the ones that are covered and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. So that was a lot of fun. I think that it really improved it. And I mean, it went from uh, William beating us handily every single time to uh, the score of 64, 64, 63. That's, I mean, that's pretty close. It's so, about as close as it gets. Yeah, pretty much. So I think that it did a really good job in balancing some of the things that were a lot less balanced, and I think I'm really looking forward to seeing how it go, keeps going forward. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Well, there you go. That's a look at what we've been playing. And here we go, talking about high-level campaigns. Uh, We realized that it had been a while since we had done sort of an RPG-focused segment. We wanted to get back to that. And we, for your birthday, which just happened, happy birthday. Thank you. uh, Ran a really fun, really interesting one-shot, which you actually designed and ran for us, that was everybody's level 15. Just Mm -hmm. straight up. It's a one-shot. You're not getting any higher. You're not, you know, having to work your way up. It's just, you are level 15. Go crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So this seemed like a really appropriate thing to talk about, and I think it's it's good. I think it's interesting, 
and it opens up some really neat avenues for play, not just starting at high level, but talking about the differences in playing at a high level. Yeah, for sure. And there are surprisingly a lot. So first off, creating a a level 15 character takes a while. (laughs) Yeah, you've got a lot of decisions to make. And actually, I don't want to be Sam Regal over here, but I'm going to plug D&D Beyond for a minute Mm -hmm. because we were playing 5e and the character creation is just really intuitive. You're like, I want to be level 15. And it says, okay, cool. And it gives you an entire list of your class features and the little boxes are highlighted if you need to make a choice. Yeah. And then that's it. And then you go through that process and it spits out your character sheet and you're like, bam, and it gives you reminders Mm -hmm. and everything. So definitely if you're playing 5e, D&D Beyond, totally worth it. I, I love it. I mean, I have every book that I own physically in D&D Beyond too, so that also helps a lot because that means yeah. we can use every class feature and then do some character building and all that kind of stuff. So right. uh, it's a lot of fun. Plus, for more, like, you know, if, if you're doing it more ahead of time, because we did it very last minute, we rolled up stats the, the night before and then yeah, play, well, and played it. But You know, that's um, how we do. But one of the cool things about it is that you can set up a campaign and send everyone the link, and they can all use your your link to just create it into your campaign. Oh, nice. And they have access to everything that you do in order to create the character uh, because you're the GM. Right. And one of the cool things with that is that you also now get to see all their stats beforehand and all their spells and all that kind of stuff. Right. And you can say, oh, what have you prepared for me today? Hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. don't have fireball? Here's a swarm of spiders. Yeah. And funnily enough, so while I was planning the one shot, I was thinking about a few different monsters. I was looking at the, um, you know, D and D books as well as like some of my other extra books that I have. And one of the monsters came up uh, that was a it was, it was something along the lines of like a storm elemental ish type thing. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at it, I was just like, you had been t- talking to me about your character before, and you're just like, yeah, I'm doing the storm mage. I have all these lightning things. And it had immunity to lightning. Oh, immunity. Oh, my. Okay, so I invested in a feat that gave yeah. me, I can ignore resistances mm-hmm. when I cast lightning spells. But that, oh, that would have been devastating. I I had six, no, seven spells that dealt damage. Yeah. 100% of them dealt lightning damage. Yep. Except for one that also incidentally dealt bludgeoning damage. Yeah. But like the bulk of it was lightning. So yeah, that would have completely hamstrung me. Yeah, and, and I remember the last time I did a high level campaign, like you had done a whole giant killer uh arc and that <laughs> kind of thing, and I didn't give you any giants to it's kill. True. It's true. And so true. I was just like, I am not going to do this for Greg twice in a row. All right, time to look for something else. I, I, mean, I found something that was more appropriate, but <laughs> force me to force me to adapt. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, when is a one shot? Like, I, I, forcing you someone to adapt, I think, in a campaign is very useful and you need to do it. Right. But in a one shot, you want to, like, at least have everyone have their shining moment of just, like, you know, let me do this. Let me, yeah. like, you know, uh, high charisma, talk someone out of it or, like, you know, do something else like that. So uh, that that's definitely something with one shots. You have to make sure that everyone has some kind of moment that they shine. Well, and so you, one of the things you mentioned is that, you know, everyone wants to shine, everyone wants to use mm-hmm. their abilities, and that's really at the heart of what a high-level campaign yeah. is. You know, you it, whether it's a one-shot and you start at 15, or whether you've been playing for literally years, because a lot of times, depending on, you know, the GM and how what the party gets through, what yeah. the distribution of experience looks like, or how levels are, are dispersed, it can take literally years to get to, mm-hmm. you know, the 12, 15 range that sort of you might traditionally consider high-level D&D. And you're finally getting the payoff. 
-hmm. you know, I, as, as a habitual character builder, you know, when I'm designing characters, I'm not thinking about all the work that's going to have to go into getting to this place where I'm going to use all these class features. I'm just looking at the class features and saying, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want to go for. And, you know, all the intervening time is just stepping stones until I get to, you know, not full build, but like optimized, realized, realized. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can do the cool things. I can make the five attacks and sprint 60 feet as a monk, or I can, yeah. you know, cast double cast lightning spells from my hands as the mm -hmm. storm sorcerer. You know, th those are the payoff moments, not just within the context of a scenario. Yeah or an encounter, which are also really satisfying, but over the, you know, the entirety of the campaign and really over building that entire character. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that as a GM, you have to, like, you know, realize that it, it is like that. It's like, you know, there are, your players are putting a decent amount of effort into just trying to like make their really, really cool characters. And I find it, very fun to just try to like figure out different ways of letting them their like powers shine in a way but also challenging them to use it like in slightly different ways mm -hmm. so uh that was fun like you know uh, just some of the items that you had definitely inspired me to do certain things with my campaign <laughs> uh like i was really glad that you got a portable boat yes yes that portable boat came in extremely handy yep rip portable boat it did not survive the encounter but I think being able to play at this high level and being able to sort of do some of those things with those characters that you're always wanting to do, you mm -hmm. know, you're thinking about if, you, if people are stereotypically drawing inspiration from traditional sources like Lord of the Rings yeah. or, or even some of the more, you know, magically intense scenes from uh, Game of Thrones or, mm -hmm. you know, classic fantasy media, you know, this is that. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. you really get the, the payoff. But also, I think the opportunity to play at high level just gives you so much more opportunity to be creative, mm -hmm. you know, because you've moved past the point of being a one trick pony, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a warrior at first level is going to hit stuff, you know, and maybe there's going to be a little bit of nuance and a barbarian's going to rage, but you know, you advance that to 15th level and a barbarian's still going to rage, but they're going to be able to do so much more. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's been really interesting to see sort of the development of these, sources uh, you know i feel mm -hmm. like traditionally in in tabletop rpgs D D in particular you you used to have this sort of dichotomy where the early levels were very heavily balanced towards combat characters martial characters you know mm -hmm. things that you don't need that much training for you, you anyone can pick up a sword and like learn how to swing it right so the people who can swing it harder and better are going to shine because they've got the hit points to be on the front line and they don't have spell slots <laughs> yep. that are going to run out in two rounds but so traditionally it was that it was warriors and fight and barbarians and fighters dominated the early levels and then you know once you get into high levels you have this switch and suddenly oh the mage can cast time stop cool everybody else is dead like, yeah, um, but I think recent systems, you know, you're looking at your Pathfinders and your 5Es, they've done a really wonderful job of balancing the higher levels so that everybody continues to feel unique and powerful and to have more diversity of what they can do. You know, and to not kill your DM with trying to do calculations of how to counter a you know someone who has a plus forty in something. Right. Also very important. Five B in particular has really dramatically brought down the inflation. You know, yeah. we we were playing at fifteenth level. The highest modifier we had at the table was twenty, which is admittedly huge, 
but that was hyper specialized mm-hmm. and most of the modifiers capped out at like plus 10 yeah and that's pretty standard exactly and that's something that you can still work with as a gm uh because that still means that a roll below a seven for example is still not guaranteed really to succeed right and you you can actually work with that and try to uh put people in situations where they have disadvantage and other things like that and even just naturally they they just won't always be overpowering everyone other than the amazing like you know high class people they can still talk to a merchant and get bartered down and like not be able to buy something for the price they want or not be able to convince someone that they are who they are say they are something like that right right and i think this gets into more your territory which is speaking as sort of the more experienced gm at the table designing encounters whether it's combat or non-combat in such a way that it still feels you know because as satisfying as it is to be awesome and succeed at things it if it's not a challenge it's going to take some of that satisfaction out of it you yeah. know if you just oh the shopkeep is giving away his stuff to us because we charisma the hell out of him or like, you know walk behind him and pick his pocket for everything he owns exactly exactly like that's just going to lose its luster after a while so how do you approach designing a high level encounter whether it be combat or social or exploration I think that the biggest thing is that you have to know your players and what they want to do. And I also think that this is where, at least in my experience, for non-combat encounters, this is where getting into the role-playing really shines. Because if you have a lot of rules lawyers in the uh, in your group, it makes it really difficult to you know, ad-lib something or mm, change something yeah. in that way or fail forward or do something like that. But you can really... For social challenges especially, like that's where you try to get your players to actually like, you know, interact with them and then just roll for those critical moments of just like, you know, will he believe you or something like that. And that can also in your brain in your mind be altered by how well they did in the in the actual role playing. Uh, and that's how I usually approach those. And Honestly, like a lot of times, if you guys roll really well, it just you're you're going to get information more easily. You're going to be able to succeed in those, especially against normal people, much more easily. Right. But that's because you are on the tier of just like heroes of heroes kind of thing. Yeah. Like that's just how it's going to be. Like if you are a charisma based sorcerer and you're trying to convince a peddler that you are whoever you're going to have a much easier time mm-hmm. or like just getting information. You're going to have a lot a lot of easier time if you're just this really, really powerful being. Yeah. But uh, I think that the biggest thing that's still a challenge for me is the combat encounters. Yeah. I mean, I've, I sort of felt that in the game that we were playing mm-hmm. and also, you know, as, as a person who's played in a, a number of high-level encounters – that can be a challenge to come up with something that's going to be able to go toe-to-toe with this party of really high-level adventurers, but also probably still die. Yeah, Because, exactly. I mean, unless you're going, you know, final boss style, you you want to be able to have a very real chance of killing people. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for for just a standard difficulty encounter, that seems like a tough needle to thread. It is, and I think that once you get to the higher levels, it becomes a lot harder because this is where you start being a little bit wary of the CR system. So, you, you know, D&D has, like, in the Monster Manual, like, what is the, the challenge rating of these different creatures? It helps, 
but at the same time, it's not perfect. Like we in this in the encounters that I had for you guys, you guys faced a CR seventeen and a CR twenty monster. Mm-hmm. So both of those back to back pretty much and were able to deal with both of them. And you guys were at level fifteen. So you were at a level fifteen party. Right. Uh, and I think one of the biggest things and one of my takeaways from this session was never send even your big bad in alone. Yeah, I really felt that. Just the ability of, you know, and our party was slightly larger than normal. We had six mm-hmm. players. Yeah. Um, so that kind of worked to our advantage. But even in a standard four-player party, I feel like the ability to gang up on a single target is pretty much always going to make it feel pretty substantially easy. Exactly. So it's, it's always like, you know, the whole uh, take one target out in order to like, you know, to negate their damage entirely or their role entirely and then keep going from there. So having multiple things that are distracting you from that main big enemy, mm-hmm. I think that that is something that that when building high level encounters, you really have to not neglect that. And that I think makes it even harder because at that point you have to be you know put some someone or some other beings there that are going to distract the players and still take up enough of their attention and not just get one shot killed right yeah they can't just be random mooks yeah they have to be at least have a sort of power level that they'll put up a fight while the big boss is able to you know whittle them down something mm-hmm. like that just to give them a little bit more of a challenge because when you guys were, for example, uh, fighting the water elemental, I didn't manage to kill the boat fast enough, unfortunately. Yeah. It, I feel like the encounter would have gone very differently if you had destroyed the boat. Yeah. So it's like, there, there was the boat that had um, a certain number of hit points. And he was doing double damage to the boat. Which oh, because uh, some... There was, he had an ability that whenever he does it to objects or uh, any kind of yeah, yeah. inanimate things, it does multiple or it does double the damage. Yeah. So even then, it took me a, a certain number of turns to actually get through it. Um, and it just so happened that like you guys were ready to banish the, the, the Tempest right at that very moment when the boat got destroyed. Right. Which was an epic scene because it was just like, the boat gets destroyed, the flying, like, you know, um, she was a half-elf, right? Or... Uh, tiefling, tiefling, tiefling noble. So the flying tiefling noble is like, is there and like cast banishment and just like sits there concentrating hovering in the air as the as the elemental has been like banished into another and uh, back into its world a great moment for oh, sure absolutely but it was that kind of thing just uh, just imagining like, you know that if there were two other little water elementals there and one of them just smacked her right like yeah. that that would have just been like the, the the thing that that uh that they'd have to be careful with um and I think that it's that kind of stuff that you have to really take into consideration. Right. Well, it's interesting, though, that you mentioned, you know, we did ultimately banish the elemental. We didn't reduce it to zero hit points. We banished it with the spell banish. Yeah. Um, but that was the second time we tried to do that. Yes. The first time didn't work um, because of the legendary resistances mechanic where you mm-hmm. can just automatically succeed on saves. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, in these sort of big bad situations, those mechanics have really stepped up. They're, they're mm-hmm. really interesting. You know, you've got legendary resistances, just shrug off effects that require saving throws. You've got legendary actions. Legendary actions. I was like, extra actions? That doesn't sound right. Yeah. 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 Extra actions that they can just take at any point during a round. Or at the end of someone's turn is what right. it is. Yeah. Um, which, which just really helps, you know, the, the action economy. Because mm-hmm. 
four people going before one person gets to go. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just going to be you wailing on a guy until he's dead. Pretty much. Um, but, you know, the fact that the big bad can go at an unknown time, like it just makes it, it makes it hard to plan around. It gives them extra action economy. Mm. And overall, I think it makes for a much more interesting encounter that kind of gets at, okay, well, if there's only one opponent, at least we're going to make them way stronger. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that, you know, even having a couple of, a couple of sidekicks mm. uh, does go a long way in an encounter like that. Yeah. And I think one of the other things, one one thing that we didn't really get to use while in our one shot because uh, you didn't go to any kind of lair, but I think the lair actions are also really interesting for high level stuff. I actually don't know what those are. So it's pretty much uh, when a creature has a lair and you go into it, it not only gets the legendary actions, but it also gets specific actions that interact with the environment of the lair. Ooh. That like, you know, it could be um, an aboleth that like, has just all this stuff in his lair that are different traps, different kinds of like abilities that can trigger when you do different things hmm. in, in its lair or like, you know, a dragon, like an elder dragon has some crazy stuff going on when you find its cave in his horde. Right. Um, that really, really give it that home field advantage because it knows exactly where everything is and how to like use the different defense mechanisms that they've put into their, their cave. That sounds pretty legit. Um, so I think that that's also something that you, like, you know, if you lure your players in rather than like having the monster come to them, that could also be a really powerful thing to do and uh, thing to send after them. Yeah, absolutely. But overall, I think, you know, high level encounters are just a really wonderful way for players and for GMs to sort of flex their muscles in a space that people don't usually get to explore. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we mentioned, it takes a long time to get there if you're playing in a dedicated campaign. And some campaigns don't even get there. You know, a lot of them, uh, our friends just finished up a campaign that I think they said they were level eight. Something like that, yeah. Um, and that's a perfectly normal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of campaigns, even if they don't end early, even if they do go through to what the GM considers completion, they just don't have the the sense of scale um, necessary to get up to some of these high levels. So Not only that, but it's also just in terms of a campaign, it's really hard to keep a story thread going through so many years, so many months, so many sessions. Yeah. Because like, if you think about it, like, if you meet twice a month, so that's twenty four sessions a year, tops. Yeah. And at that point, you know, even if you level every other session, you're still only at level twelve. Right. In a year. Right. So it just takes a long time to get all the way up there from level one, and. It is difficult. And in general, like the high level campaigns and high level one shots and everything like that, they do take a decent amount of dedication, both from the players and from the GM's point of view, because uh, both, you know, the players are dedicating enough time to create these characters uh, and try these different things and put them all together. And the GM is also, you know, helping with that, like, you know, especially in 5e, how much do magic items cost and all that kind of stuff. And then you have like the GM actually having to plan out all the different things that are going to happen. And you have to know your players because if you have a bunch of level 15 murder hobos <laughs> going into a town, like on a one shot, well. that's just not going to be at the end. Well, no. <laughs> like you have to know what kinds of things your players like to do and what kinds of players they are. Uh, so you can tailor the campaign to them even more than you would at level one. Because if you have a bunch of murder hobos anywhere between level 1 and 5, the town guard is pretty easily like, able to 
take care of them. Mm-hmm. Like they can still get captured. They're not at the level where like they blink and a down guard guardsman goes up in flames. Yeah. Like, but at level fifteen, level twenty, yeah, they could do that. So you got to be very careful with that, and you got to know your audience. So I think that it's it's very much a um, a bigger challenge on everyone involved. But it can be so much more epic and so much more fulfilling once you actually are able to put it all together. Definitely. Well, there you go. Thanks for joining us, everybody, where we talk about high-level campaigns. Uh, Obviously, if you have examples, experiences from your own Mm -hmm. tabletop life about high-level late-game campaigns, we'd love to hear them. You know, comment... uh, you know, below on the Facebook page, if that's where you're listening or, you know, send us a message and we'd, uh, we'd love to hear your stories. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Don't forget, WashingCon is coming up September 8th and 9th. Tickets are on sale now. You can head over to washington.com and pick yours up. There's also opportunities to volunteer. Uh, If you do volunteer, you can get a free badge. So that is definitely a worthwhile trade. It's going to be an amazing convention this year. Always is. Lots of board games, lots of, you know, really cool designers, publishers, all that sort of thing from the DMV area, DC, Maryland, Virginia, for those of you who don't actually live in the DMV. Um, But if you do, we absolutely hope to see you. It's going to be a blast. And don't forget to join us next Monday for our new episode.